Hello and welcome to the Travelling Ergonomist podcast. I'm your host, Kirsty Angra, and my job as an ergonomics consultant is to educate people on how to get their bodies into neutral postures. And in today's professional world, with the prominence of agile and remote working, ergonomics is more important than ever. So sit back, relax, and let's navigate the workplace together. able to make this work as Christina is due on maternity leave any day now with her second child. Dr. Christina Candido is an architect by training and she holds a PhD in civil engineering from the Federal University of Santa Catarina in Brazil and in environmental science from Macquarie University in Australia. She leads a sustainable and healthy environments platform and co-leads the Building Occupant Survey System Australia tool. Her research expertise and interests relate to post-occupancy evaluation, indoor environmental quality and activity-based working, and I can't wait for you to hear her insights. Before we get into this episode, I'd like to thank our sponsors, Backer Alkaizen, who specialize in developing high-end ergonomic hard and software solutions that contribute to the physical and mental well-being of computer users. Their innovative solutions encourage employees to achieve better wellness at work, become more productive, adopt healthy postures and alternate between them to increase movement. They're a great brand and I've seen firsthand how important employee wellness is to them. Hey, Christy. How are you? I haven't seen you in forever. I mean, I see you on, you know, LinkedIn all the time and you always do wonderful things, but I haven't seen you since, I don't know, months ago, right? Yeah, I think I was trying to recall when we last met for coffee and it must be at least one year ago. That's what I'm thinking. Yeah, it's insane, isn't it? It's been a long time. Time flies when you're having fun, I guess. I suppose so, yes. Do I remember correctly that you are pregnant? I am. I am 35 weeks this week, so just a few days more and he'll be here. It's a boy. Oh, my gosh. Um, I know. It's our second child, so the family is very excited about it, hence having my mom around. (laughs) So it's still having very productive days, but yes, pretty big at the moment, at the moment. Yeah, yeah. Well, congratulations. That's so exciting. Thank you. Yeah, we're all very happy, of course. It's a blessing. Absolutely. And so what does that mean for you work-wise? Are you going to take some time off now for a few months? So I decided to actually take a proper break and just spend time with family because with two little ones, I'm sure the dynamics are going to be completely different as it was last time around. So, yeah, it's good. I think we need to embrace these gaps, yes, kind of different parts of our personality in our life and just make the most of it. Because by the time you come back at work, you know that you have that wonderful year with your kids. I think that's so important. Exactly. I mean, I don't have children myself, but from what friends say to me, you know, it's so important to bond with the child and just have a few moments to live that life a, a slightly different light it doesn't mean you have to not go back to work ever again it just means that you're changing perspectives for a few months I think so I think it's really important and I mean the end of the day working moms we put so much pressure onto us um, and I think being able to have like a proper break is something that we should be allowed to embrace fully and you know the end of the day I'm a lot more confident now than I was the first time in the sense that I know I'm a better worker 
because of my child. So you get to push yourself harder, but you also get to achieve a lot more quicker. So it's, it's really interesting going through the process a second time around because at least you have that reference that is like, yes, this work is going to be there waiting for you. And guess what? When you come back, you're going to kick ass. Yeah. So it's kind of, <laughs> it's really interesting. <laughs> I like that. I like that mindset. <laughs> I think it's all about mindset, as you know. I think you should do some research on this, Christina. <laughs> I probably should. I think I, I should. It would be a really nice, interesting research project. I think we concentrate so much and very rightly so on the downsides of us and how difficult it is, how stressful we can be. But we, seldom we talk about the transformative effect that has onto you any in your confidence sometimes. And absolutely that you just you are a better worker because you you manage time better. You can achieve more in, in less time. You're more focused. And most importantly, I think it's a matter of prioritizing and ignoring things that are not going to help you and saying no. So being, I think, more in control over what you do and less hostage of what other people think or say. So it really, it's all about mindset, I think. I really believe so, yeah. Well, I didn't think we would be talking about this, but this is already insightful information. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's what I think, at least. I have no evidence. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, well, you're a numbers lady, so we need evidence from you. That's right, that's right. Well, in this environment that you're in now, about to have another baby, I'm so thankful and grateful for you being on the podcast and giving me a bit of your time. Well, thanks for the invite. I think these are very good opportunities to put you know, the work out there and I, I embrace them. And I mean, why would I ever say no to any opportunity to have a chat with you anyway? So yes, of course. So I'm very happy to talk about, you know, things I love and work is a big part of it. So yeah, my pleasure entirely. Thank you. Well, I was actually trying to recall our last conversation and I actually found some notes that I'd written, I think after our catch up on our coffee. And you said to me, and I think you've mentioned this in an an article before as well, that 90,000 hours of our life are spent at work. Indeed. I'm always shocked when I hear or when I say that, but I heard that from another presentation, somebody else said that and it just got, you know, it was completely stuck in my brain forever there are so many things that become a motivation for what I do at work uh, coming from that number, but also be mindful of the amount of time that we actually there and everything else that we're not doing with those 90,000 hours. Yeah. That we're actually at work. So it gives that other side of perspective as well. Like you investing all this, this amount of time in your work. So you might as well make it, the best of it, I suppose. It comes with that responsibility, I reckon. It's crazy to me. I mean, I, th- I think you also said, so that means that 90% of our lifetime is spent indoors as well. And I know you've done a lot of research on kind of indoor air quality and thermal environments. What has the data shown or what have you drawn from that research? What insights have you drawn? Coming with, you know, from this realization of how much time we spend at work and indoors, it really motivates me to understand if there is anything we can possibly do to improve 
conditions that people are exposed to every day because yes a lot of you have the opportunity to work flexibly but that doesn't change the fact that you still very much most of the time indoors again so investigating how indoor environmental quality or indoor environments may affect people it's something i'm very passionate about it because i think it really has the potential to contribute a lot to our health, well-being, productivity during our life. So it's a motivation, being mindful of the amount of time we spend indoors. Mm. So what I've been finding through the research, my research is very much concentrated in office workplaces. I'm very interested in finding design solutions that actually work for office workers because again most of us are working from an office in you know several hours of a, of a week yeah so what are we finding through the research is there are several design driven aspects of an office that may have a positive impact on people's satisfaction health and, and well-being and that is, I decided a few years ago to take a different route. There is a lot of research that is being conducted, especially within an open plan office environment that dedicates itself to map all the negatives about that type of office. So I think we have a wealth of knowledge about what doesn't work within open plan office. And yes. that's important. But on the other side of this story is we're starving for information or people that actually spend time investigating aspects of an office that is open plan that may actually be positive. And why would I bother doing that? Because that not necessarily is popular. Is because I believe we have a responsibility to improve conditions for people. So if we already know and agree that this office topology comes with several shortcomings, the question that comes to my mind every time I read a paper about it is, so what? What can we actually do about it? What are we doing about it? Can we do <laughs> anything about it? If it's so bad, can we improve? Because it's actually irresponsible not to do so. It's irresponsible with people that are working in offices like this across the world just to map the negatives. So that is a motivation of mine is to understand design solutions for open plan offices that will actually improve conditions for people to work. And that's where I spend a lot of my 90,000 hours <laughs> while I am at work in pursuit of this idea. <laughs> I think that's amazing. I really love your perspective on things because I think also we're kind of overwhelmed with data these days and overwhelmed with all this information, but no one actually knows how to manage the data or what information to take from the data to build a solution. And I think the way you kind of handle things is a better way of doing it and you're actually giving us solutions. Yeah, it's really interesting how the whole data acquisition systems and you know the capabilities and the possibilities these days, they were not really here five seven years ago it was one very expensive to buy equipment good quality equipment yeah so it, it was fairly limited of the number of points that you would be sampling for my space there was a lot of cost related from the equipment itself but also human resources because then to be sampling most of this equipment is also handheld so it depends on having someone on site and that 
also is a burden. Mm -hmm. These days we are living, I think, the other side of the story where we have these amazing ecosystems, you know, live ecosystems of data that are just pouring in from several systems and data acquisition systems there are part of several buildings and as a researcher that is the best case scenario but now we are kind of i think living this transitional phase at the moment where we are very excited about it we can all see relate you know to the possibilities but we still learning how we actually go about making sense of this amount of information So if before we were struggling because perhaps we didn't have enough data to work with, now we are still really trying hard to be able to digest the amount of information because it can be quite overwhelming if you ever had the opportunity to get data from a real office or a building that has these real-time data acquisition systems. I mean, when you get a spreadsheet in front of you, you don't even know what to do with it sometimes. (laughs) So I think we're kind of living a a phase that we are both academia and industry. We're kind of having this little bit of a, you know, paralyzing effect that we'll get over it very soon, I suppose. But it's a little bit too much to digest in a good way. But I'm sure we'll get out of this phase soon enough. And the possibilities are just incredible. I think one of the pieces of research that you did while I was still living in Sydney was with WT Partnership and Cache Group. Is that right? That's correct, yeah. yes. You would, I think it was on activity-based working and how that environment influences workers' health and productivity and, and their wellness. Why did you do that piece of research? What made you do it? I think that was by far one of the best opportunities I ever had in working with industry. It's been so absolutely fascinating having Kashe as an industry partner simply because they gave us complete freedom to just pursue our research aims and interest, but also at the same time being always there to provide that contextual information that sometimes researchers not necessarily have access to it. Sure. So it was a really powerful, I think, combination of two to three years strong, very strong engagement with Kashe, where basically I would bring the evidence and they would bring the industry expertise and by merging the two of them we could actually understand a lot more about offices so the whole motivation was really if open plan offices are you know a polarizing term everywhere that you go any country i think activity-based working is like 10 times that So it has that super polarizing effect. By the time you talk about non-territorial offices, people already have that negative response to it immediately. And I think there are reasons for that. One of the main reasons comes from failures of implementation that happened over the last, you know, decades. So when we came across WT, it was very interesting because... I was just really surprised by the super positive results that we find in there. It was a very long engagement process. It had a very driven design 
take on to it. Mm-hmm. People are very engaged from the get-go. And then once it was implemented, that engagement just continued. So there was a lot of synergy between the designers and managers and also the workers. And that became a really successful recipe for that particular business. It really worked. And of course, I was just curious to understand why. So, you know, that whole curiosity that is needed for any researcher, like, why is this working so wonderfully? And why am I finding also other offices in Australia that were designed to support activity-based working that are actually working and outperforming the database in terms of satisfaction when you actually have these negative yeah, or negativity around the topic. So I was really, really curious about it. And then that's why we started the project. We wanted to be able to understand WT was a very strong case study for us because it still has really good satisfaction scores coming from that office. But there were other several other offices, a total of 20, wow. that we also investigated before and after trying to understand where people came from and the new way of working and the new office fit out that was implemented to support that and trying to compare the before and after relocation results. So it was a fascinating research project. And so can you give me some insights into what is the perfect recipe, I guess, to creating workplace change? So if I have a client or there is a a business out there going through workplace change or, or about to move a number of employees to a new building, what does that recipe look like? Who should they be engaging? What things should they be thinking about when they're going through this workplace change? I think one of the main conclusions from this study is there is no recipe, (laughs) which is perhaps not what you wanted to hear. But in the sense that you shouldn't come with a pre-set solution that you think you're going to impose onto that business and it's just going to work because it worked for several others. Of course, there will be key design aspects of an office that we were able to map which I'll talk about them in a minute. But I think once decided to change the way the business is working, the way people work and the infrastructure or the office infrastructure that you have to provide for that to happen, each business will have to find its own way of doing that. And I think the only way to be successful based on what I've seen, if it is a real partnership between the ideas for the business, but also people. You have to put people first because at the end of the day, you should never impose a vision for that business. You really need to understand your business are, you know, your employees. (laughs) So having this really human-centric approach to this is number one in a checklist. If I would ever give anyone a checklist, it would be that. You have to place your employees first. And you can't, for example, force people to work in a way that goes against the way they actually work. So even understanding how different departments, different groups organically arrange themselves is step number one, I think. And then step number two would be engagement 
engagement. You should never be afraid of listening to people and let them voice their concerns because at the end of the day, they're going to be exposed to that office every single day. And if they don't really feel like coming to the office, that's already productivity, you know, going through the window to me right there. If you don't have the motivation, then you're already in trouble. So I think these are the two things I think is spend time and money and invest. It's an investment. Finding a solution that will fit your way of working of your employees, put people first, and then let them participate in the process. These are two. When we look into the office design itself, these 20 offices, they have several things that are very similar in the sense of it seems to be key aspects and drivers uh, for satisfaction. One of them is have variety. One of the things, one of the main issues in open plan offices is because we try to do everything from our desk. And then if you're having a phone call or if you're like working on a podcast as we are right now <laughs> and I have another person, of course, that's not going to work. So being able to provide variety in places for people to work, regardless if that is an activity-based working space, is paramount, is number one. So that reduces dissatisfaction quite dramatically. Number two is connectivity with outdoors, access to daylight, and greenery. Mm-hmm. All these offices, they did put biophilic design principles as a priority of the design, and all of them have tried really hard to be generous with people, with the office workers, in having access to those outdoors, daylight, and amount of greenery indoors. So that is quite interesting. The third thing we found is people will be very frustrated, and that's perhaps a passion of yours, if I'm right, ability to adjust their work area. So that's where ergonomics play a major role in terms of the not only the quality of the furniture itself, but also the ability to adjust. Because if you're not working from the same workstation every day, that's particularly important in non-territorial offices, then every time you have a new desk or a new chair, you need to be able to adjust that. <laughs> like that, is, that seems like ergonomics 101 to me. But, you know, the, the number of offices that fail in doing that is astonishing. So when we give people that degree of freedom or control, of course they're going to embrace that. And of course that we will have secondary but very direct satisfaction scores for that particular dimension. So let them move around, find spots to do their task, put them in very close to biophilic design concepts and give them freedom freedom to adapt and adjust their surroundings. These are the three key learnings from the design perspective that I've seen in these offices. Wow. Amazingly fascinating. And I completely agree with you. I'm, I, I guess the, the most passionate aspect of those three would be, like you say, the last one where people have that personal control. Because I think this concept of agile working, activity-based working, people automatically assume that they're losing control. They're losing their pedestal. They're losing, you know, their desk where they've got their photographs of their families and their 
cups that they've had for years on end that they've had as gifts and their little plants on the, on the desks. But moving to an activity-based working environment, that's all taken away from them. So it's automatically kind of a negative perception of what they're going into. But if you encourage a flexible working environment where they can control how they adjust their chair, how they adjust their desk, then I think that should be more positive. That's very interesting because that is exactly the opposite of what happened. So okay. so it's like not their adjustability as they engage with that, but I mean, the, you know, the loss that they have. Yes, you, you're going to lose your workstation. You lose your ability of nesting, which is really important. And there are several papers that have been written about it. That wasn't the focus of our investigation, but I think we can now relate to it. We like to have our stuff around yeah. <laughs> and being able to personalize a workstation. So it's not only you are in an open plan office, which is completely shared, but now you have someone telling you that you were losing that last bit of violence that is yours. So I can totally understand, you know, the whole pushback on that side. Yes. But there is another side of this story that sometimes we overlook is once people start working in those environments, if everything is actually properly implemented, so I'm talking about high-performance workspaces here, the best of the best. What we've been observing during the research is you lost your workstation. Yes, true. But now you actually have gained the entire office to you. I like that thought process. Because if you have to make a phone call, you don't have to be hiding in the bathroom or in the corridor or in that, you know, end of trip facilities as people do. You actually have a proper space that is being designed to give you privacy, visual privacy, sound privacy for you to make a phone call. So you are moving away from your workstation. Yes, it's true. (laughs) But you're actually gaining several other spaces within an office that are there to support you. And that is very different. But see, what I was saying before, a lot of the downsides, which are all true and I don't dispute them about these offices, exist and are true. But we can address several of them through a proper design And once people occupy those spaces and they embrace the entire office infrastructure, I'm not surprised they're actually more satisfied because that makes sense, doesn't it? Well, after you've just said all of that, absolutely, it makes sense now. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely. The way you framed it is enlightening, actually. And I never really thought of it that way. Of course, if yes, you might lose your workstation or your specific desk, but like you say, you you gain so much more by having the whole office to deal with and having the whole office to manage your day-to-day work. Yes. So when you think about open plan offices, what is one of the main issues is the lack of control, right? We don't control our colleague who's speaking loudly on our, you know, next to us. Uh, We don't control temperature, but in the case of temperature, for example, it's quite interesting to be in an office that you can move around because You don't have to be working from that workstation that you hate that airflow drafting that is coming (laughs) from, you know, the top or from from the bottom. You can actually go elsewhere. You're not bound. You're no longer bound to any specific location. If you want to go perhaps, and I've seen that in, in quite a few offices, it's Friday 
and you're feeling a little bit more relaxed and you want to work for a particular location in the building that is a little bit noisier, you would actually welcome that because it's Friday. (laughs) Then you can go there. Or if you want to get a bit of sunlight, maybe it doesn't make any sense in terms of glare. It'll be glary, but the plus side of just being exposed to that feel in the sunlight, you'll be okay with being exposed not all day, but for a while to a little bit of glare. So I think this flexibility that may come with non-territorial spaces is really justifying some of the high satisfaction scores we're finding because they were designed to provide that flexibility. Of course, it will only work if people embrace the flexibility, if they actually start marrying the conditions that they have, the little pockets that they have designed within the open plan office they are occupying with what they need to do during the day. And I think that can be quite powerful. And it's not only something that can be implemented in offices that are non-territorial. We can actually do that in other offices. So we could still perhaps keep our workstations, but we need to stop expecting be able to do all the activities from the workstation within an open plan of configuration because that's never going to work. Yeah, I agree. I think actually a lot of corporates that I work with, I think part of the problem is obviously activity-based working has its benefits. And like you say, it has the flexibility to allow you to move around to a different location as and when you need. I think part of the problem is that people don't know which environment suits which part of their day. So like you say, people think that all of their tasks are in there has to be in a fixed position, has to be at their laptop with a phone next to them. But actually, you could split that up into maybe five, six, seven tasks that you do throughout the day. And that could mean six, seven different environments that you choose to work from. How do you educate a person to think like that? I think the cases that we've seen, I think that has to do a lot with the style of management. I think it really comes with that idea that if I am sitting at my desk all day, especially within an open plan office, and people see me there, that means that I'm being productive. So we need to throw that mentality out of the window from the get-go. I never believe that. I don't really believe that. I think you have different moments during your day because that is just, you know, human nature. And you should be able to marry you know, this changes during the day with the different tasks we have to do anyway as workers. There will be concentration tasks, collaborative tasks we'll need to do. There are several different activities that we do during the day, every single day. So this whole idea that I need to be bound to my desk to be perceived as being productive needs to be changed. One very successful way is if you actually see your boss doing that. So (laughs) a lot of these offices, regardless if they were activity-based working, most often they're not activity-based working. In in the case studies I had, you're actually going to see people moving around as managers. And of course, although we haven't documented, but we have anecdotal evidence that sometimes that can be quite frightening as well. Because before, maybe, in the other office configuration, your manager was in the corner office 
away from you and having him or her sitting next door or next workstation can be quite intimidating. So what are we talking about is really a cultural change that comes with a way of working. So if that culture is not there and that respect and trust, because it's really trust, yeah? If yeah, I'm taking yeah. my laptop and I'm working from the balcony because I want fresh air and access to daylight and a break, people shouldn't be assuming that I'm not working. And I suppose that is the same with when you have a lot of these businesses will have flexible working conditions implemented. If I'm working from home, I need to be trusted to work from home. So it's a cultural change and a really relationship of trust that needs to be established. How we do that, then it's beyond the scope of my research, but I know it's there. So when it comes to the design of workplaces and I think you're very familiar with this and post-occupancy evaluations and just general workspace design. Do architects and designers, in your experience, collaborate with ergonomists much? Oh, that's a big gap, unfortunately, (laughs) isn't it? (laughs) Yeah. What I'm seeing is um, there is a lot of motivation for that to happen, especially when we have specific targets set. So I think certification can be quite powerful in forcing that to happen when it's not there. I think there are lots of design firms and, you know, architecture firms that actually do collaborate with several different consultants, ergonomics being one of them. But I don't think I can actually say that that is being common practice, unfortunately. So we need a little bit more of that. But I think there is another side to it as well. And that is really, I think we can all appreciate the benefits of ergonomics, but I think a lot of designers and architects have that lack of knowledge in the education as well. So you may be able to appreciate that, but you not necessarily know how to do it. So it's a combination of both. I suppose yeah. it's going after that knowledge of, you know, a specialist or a consultant to be able to implement throughout. But perhaps we as educators, we also need to push that as being of value to already sediment that appreciation through our students. I agree. I think there needs to be better collaboration between designers and ergonomists. I think historically, probably ergonomists have challenged the designs a bit too much. You know, historically, you look at a beautifully designed office and as an ergonomist, you're automatically going, well, what's wrong? What can I change? You know, how can I design something to fit the person better and make the human better? And we kind of write off the design process. But actually, if we collaborated more with that in mind, we might have a better conversation. And I think then equally, designers probably have a bit of a misconception of ergonomists that maybe we want to change the whole world and change everything and every aspect of a workstation for each individual. But I think that's starting to change now, hopefully. And I think more education, more collaboration is is definitely needed, as you say. But isn't it a critical part of your job, though? I mean, if you're not critical of any any sort of design, in how can that be better? Is isn't it doesn't go to the core of what you do, though? Because I mean, of course, 
designers and architects, of course, they get attached to what they're producing as, as a physical environment or it can be anything. It can be from, you know, a small fence to yeah. a large precinct, but in, in you know, they, it was designed. So there is that also side of a, a certain emotional attachment to it because designs come from a very personal experience so it can come from a very personal experience and then of course the UI you have consultants criticizing your beautiful design but I think <laughs> if you are open-minded and that is the only way to progress in any profession I truly believe that is you have to keep an open mind to find the holes and the issues and I think that's where not only consultants are really important as long as they are engaged earlier in the process, because I think one of the biggest issues is the issues are created first and then consultants may be engaged too late to solve them. So I think that partnership, that multidisciplinary techniques to be there for a project to be successful. But that's where post-occupancy evaluation can also help because then you have, you know, the main arbiters actually telling you what works and what doesn't. And I think in Australia, is it has changed a lot over the years. I've been doing post-occupancy evaluations here for about seven years now. And I can see that industry is becoming more and more open to the information. And a lot of the information that is being gathered, motivated by certification or rating schemes, it's actually going back which is always the intention of a post-occupancy evaluation and feeding back into the loop. So it's mostly driven by tenants and business, but then it, it is making its way back to designers and other okay. people that are actually involved. So I see it as a positive change and it's access to evidence. Absolutely. I think, yeah, post, I mean, post-occupancy evaluations are so important because if you don't do it, how do you know that something worked? It's scary though, isn't it? Because there you are actually asking people who are occupying the space you design every day. <laughs> so yeah, of course you need to, you know, be brave and power through and just be certain that there will be things that perhaps are wrong. But if you don't do that, you never know. And a lot of working with um, designers and architecture firms is always fascinating because Sometimes they hold a particular solution as being, you know, no, this is gold standard, but it doesn't work every time. It yeah. will never work every time. So having the evidence, it's quite important in that sense. Definitely. Absolutely. And so with that information in mind, you've been doing these post-occupancy evaluations and doing research with workspace design what does the future of the workplace look like in your mind? I only think about it as being a really exciting thing and how fast things are changing. It, it really also forces you to rethink how you do your research, but how you can actually provide relevant information faster. And that goes back to our discussion on how we acquire data. So yes. traditionally, a, a post-occupancy evaluation happens six months at least after people moved into the new space and usually standard practice you do that post-occupancy evaluation once with a few exceptions and then that's it so I think we need to start getting into 
a mindset in a practice that we do these surveys not only six months after people moved, but then you can actually have much shorter versions of it mm-hmm. that you could s- sample them more often and then build this, you know, mapping of that particular office as you go. And I, I do find that quite exciting as a researcher. And I also think with dramatic change that we see now, the way people work with the rise of co-working, I think there is also a change on the culture and what people expect coming from different generations. We're more and more placing importance on the flexibility and the ability to actually balance everything we do. And the office environment is part of this, you know, this, this whole discussion. I've sat through several discussions, people really asking, why do we actually go to the office? So it's like, (laughs) that really changes. And I think I'm still, I haven't investigated it yet, but perhaps that will become a research project (laughs) in the near future. I think it has to do with seeing people. And it's about keeping the business alive in the sense of you actually bond with people, you see people, you talk. It's the human interactions that comes with being forced to be in the same place every day. But that doesn't mean that you have to be there every day, right? You know, exactly. Perhaps ideally you shouldn't even be there every day because you can actually prioritize and fundamentally change the way you organize your week to accommodate all the pressures, but also to say, you know, Mondays is a day that really works for me to do concentration type work. I don't know. Each person has a different mode. And I think we are becoming more and more appreciative of these interpersonal variations. I find things, for example, allowing people to have shorter days or even sleep at work. So this whole adjustability and flexibility that comes either from the way business operates, the way we decide to work and the office configuration we have, it seems to be in a really interesting transitional phase. So I'm very excited to see what is going to be happening in the next two years or so and being able to actually map that as we go through post-occupancy evaluation, it's quite interesting. I'm so excited as well. Me too. Do you think then that significant change can be seen within a two-year period? We've seen that here. In a, I think there are things, there are certain aspects that, yes, it can be seen in a very short period of time. I've seen over the last two or three years a significant rise of implementation of activity-based working, for example, in Australia. Yes. The uptake is, and, and the, the speed yeah, of penetration, I think it's, it's just fascinating as a change. And I'm not going to be surprised if we see another dramatic change in the next two or three years. So property industry here and the, the corporate real estate seems to be pretty fast-paced in that sense. And there are a lot of good examples popping out everywhere, every day. So it's, again, it's, um, I would say it's a, it's a really good decade for the type of research I do because we're seeing a real transformation of the market. And of course, what I'll be very, very, very interested in seeing is also transformation of existing 
fit-outs, yeah? Because there is a lot that is being done for new fit-outs and refurbishment. But I, I think there is even more, which is the really point of the iceberg, yeah, the tip of the iceberg. Yeah. But then you have this whole gigantic corporate real estate market that is there and it needs improvement, but we haven't even investigated so existing fit-outs for all the buildings uh, can be a really interesting topic of investigation. I think we've just managed to make you very busy over the next decade with all of these research questions. I have to just find my Brazilian <laughs> shoes. Yes. <So>. <laughs> <laughs> but it's just, I think it's just something, if you find something you're motivated by, then yes, you're going to dedicate several years of your life which is a bit scary but you know hey we need to find purpose for our 90,000 hours at work <laughs> don't we this is what I'm trying to do <laughs> well no I think I think the work that you're doing is incredibly important to everyone that works in a workplace and in an office or just generally works because we need your help we need your support because how do we navigate the workplace properly without any of this information it's so important so definitely a thank you from me and I'm sure a whole host of thousands of other people are thanking you for all of this research. It's exciting. Oh, thank you. There is nothing like that idea or perhaps that real wish that what you're doing is relevant and it's applied research with perhaps potential to, to actually, it's something that really motivates me and several other colleagues that do similar research. I think it, it makes it quite interesting because it's real. Yeah, it's, it's there. These are things that people are struggling with every day. And then if there is anything as a researcher that I, I can actually do to contribute just a little bit to improve and make it better, I think it comes down to this. Is um, We all know that we have these millions of people working from open plan offices. And is there anything else that we can do other than going back to private office, which I don't <laughs> think it's ever going to happen, or at least not in our generation. <laughs> but <laughs> if we just ignore going back to private offices as an option, um, then how can we make it better? I think it comes down to this. So, yes. That's true. Very true. Well, thank you. I, I think that's a perfect way to end this episode of the podcast. And I mean, I could literally talk to you for days on end about this subject, Christina. <laughs> oh, don't, don't get me started. I can talk about it. No end. <laughs> so yeah, please keep in touch. And I'm so thankful that I was able to connect with you before you go on this next few months chapter of your life. So thank you. My pleasure. <laughs>